Father, we are here this morning because we are weak this morning. We're here this morning because we have no power to rectify our stained situation. We're here this morning, and as saints gather in churches just like ours across our city and the world, because sinners like us have found in you an answer to our weakness in your Son, the Lord Jesus. But more than an answer to our weakness, our destitute condition condemned under sin, we have found an answer to our heart's greatest longing, a friend in you and in Christ. For you are more than our Savior from sin, but as we have sung, you are ours forevermore, for we were made to walk with you. We are treasure hunters, and we have found treasure in you. Make us this morning to know what we have found. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, please open with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. The book of Genesis, chapter 5, will be in chapters 4 through the first few verses in chapter 6 this morning, but we'll begin by reading all of chapter 5. Well, records are making a comeback. Uh, You can get almost any new release in vinyl these days. I remember as a kid, Dad would come home on Friday nights after a long day or week, and we would just roll records and dance all over the living room floor. I'm glad there weren't cell phone cameras to capture any of that racket when I was a kid. There is no record except my own memory. Well, if my brother and I stomped hard enough or fell to the ground in obnoxious fun, the record might get a scratch and we might have what we call a broken record. And so the record might skip across a certain part over and again. Well, this morning we have our Bible's first genealogy of the human race, a record of one of Adam and Eve's lines charting generations. And it is in a few senses... A broken record. But if you listen closely, you'll hear an early sound of the Bible's song of salvation. Let's read together Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. And all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters, Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. 
When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he'd fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord God cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, what do we know from this chapter? Surprisingly, quite a bit. We know that people at this time had some awfully long lives back then. The notable question is not why they lived so long, but why our years are now cut so short. More on that later. And really the prior question is why anyone has any years at all outside the garden. We know that God's image remains in humanity and it's transferred down by sonship. As one has a son, the image is passed down. We see that God really likes humanity. We know that he values humanity. He keeps track. He has inscripturated here the names, the specific names of various people. And he has charted out the generations of early human history. We know that we will indeed surely die. And he died. And he died. And he died. Our history is a broken record and we each have our own day. We also know that there is hope. We know there's hope. This chapter is more than a segue between two parts. It's easy to read it and just get through it. Is there really a sermon in this chapter? We see hope in two bright spots, though, on the black canvas of this chapter, painted with death. Two breaks from the pattern, two, two hints at the melody of the Bible's salvation song. There's hope on the lips of Lamech when he named his son Noah. He named his son Noah, which means rest. More on that next week. And then before that, there is hope in the footsteps of a man named Enoch who walked with God, who never died, whom God took. Which means Lamech's hope is well-founded, no doubt, Men and women would wonder what happened to Enoch, and the story would persist. And from this, we're told two things. First, that east of Eden, there is hope for an answer to death. We get that much from Enoch's disappearance. And even better, second, there is hope for an actual walk with God outside of Eden. We are banished from the presence of God, but God has not left us. The glimmer of hope in this chapter is hope for a walk with God. So let's focus our hearts on that part of our hope 
this morning. What does it mean to walk with God? What does it mean to walk with God? Turn with me now to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. We're going to answer that question in the first part of our sermon by way of contrast. Contrast with Seth's older brother. You see, Seth's line is followed in chapter 5. But Seth is not actually the firstborn. There was a firstborn who forfeited his place in the family. And in these two men, we find two ways to live outside of Eden. In chapter 5, we have seen a man who walks with God. And we have very little detail about what that means. Well, in chapter 4 now, we will observe a man who in his heart first and later actually wandered from God. And we, and we have a fair bit of detail in this case. So what does it mean to walk with God? First, by way of contrast, in chapter 4, we have a man who wandered from God, a man who wandered from God. The first scene after Adam and Eve leave the garden, let's read this. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Well, at the birth of her son, Eve, this first mother, is full of faith. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord, she says. No epidural, no snack traps, no Dyson stick, no parenting books, just God's pain that he has given to her under the curse and God's promise that he has given to the first couple. Apparently, they raised the boys to worship the Lord. That's the right thing to do. Perhaps they told them about how God made their dad. Perhaps they told them about how God made their mom. Perhaps they told them about the omnipotent, omniscient, all-glorious God who is the source of every blessing, every color, and every taste, and every, every star in the universe, and how they are, humanity is the, the very center of his purposes to bless. Here, naturally, the boys worship God. Cain, the firstborn, brings an offering, and Abel brings an offering as well. And they are met with different responses from God. Our curiosity is quickly fastened upon what it was about the offerings, what it was that, that made one acceptable and one unacceptable. The, off, the answer is, as best I can tell, between the lines, there's a, perhaps a subtle indication Though it's not certain, Cain brought an offering of fruit of the ground. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and the fat portions. One appears to check the box. The other one comes to God eagerly for his pleasure. But we get a not-so-subtle indication in God's response to what they brought. God had offered Cain's response 
excuse me. God had no regard for Cain's offering. And how did Cain respond? With grief that he did not please the Lord? With a longing to do so? No, with anger at God. Anger that God would not approve of him on his own terms. Anger that, if you will, God would not bow to him. And as God did with Adam, his own father, now he queries Cain. This time with a note with a note of advice to talk him out of his sin. Verses 6 through 7, the Lord God said to Cain, Why are you so angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That is good counsel. Cain knows God's will and God is a clear, straightforward an effective preacher. How will Cain respond to this open statement, this unambiguous statement of the truth? Well, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, verse 8, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. How did Cain respond to God's unambiguous word with premeditated murder? He spoke with his brother, and at the right time, in the right place, he rose up, and he killed his brother, Eve's first son, the world's first murderer. Well, God came with his word. Now God comes with questions. Verse 9, then the Lord God said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Adam blamed first and then confessed, I ate. Well, Cain lies and then makes a joke. But God is no idiot. Verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive you, to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Adam quietly accepted his punishment from God. How will Cain receive his? Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Adam quietly accepted his punishment. Cain protests And wallows in self-pity. How will God answer? Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. The world would be filled with Abel's kin. Verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Well, in this murder that we have witnessed, what have we witnessed? We've witnessed a man reject God's word. There's no evidence here that God's word does not work. It can be plain and faithfully communicated, certainly in this case from the very mouth of God and premeditated murder. Follow. Be encouraged when your counseling with the word efforts seem unfruitful if you were faithful. 
We witnessed a confrontation between God and a sinner. Notice Satan has receded into the background. Oh, he is in the story in the background, but throughout almost the entire Old Testament, he will get but hardly a mention. We are responsible for our own sin. We witnessed God showing grace to a sinner. He covered Adam and Eve before he sent them out, and he has, he has covered in a different way this, this murderer before he has sent him out to wander. God is his protector. There's no place for retributive justice in this world. God settles the books on his own. In Israel, the first hearers would hear in this the the foundation for what they knew to be cities of refuge that God would provide for those who were on the run from, those who would take retributive justice. And we witnessed Eve's first major heartache, a mother's first heartache. Her firstborn son would not crush the head of the serpent as she thought perhaps maybe this son would. No, he was himself the offspring of the serpent. Most importantly, we've witnessed, that is in terms of what this story is doing in the broader story of Genesis, we have witnessed sin's descent outside of Eden. Hearts have gotten harder and they will continue to get harder. We've witnessed sin's descent. Now we witness its spread the first city. Read with me in verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujiel, and Mahujiel fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech had took two wives. The name of one was Ida, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ida bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the, and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. Moses is doing a few things here. In this paragraph, Moses, that is, through whom God inspired this this book. Moses is helping his first readers know where civilization got its, its start. The Israelites were entering a land filled with culture and new cities. And when he speaks of the father of those who dwell in tents and livestock, and of the, the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe, and the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, he's saying these are the guys we're indebted to for these skills and these trades. This is where these things have come from. And so we can appreciate and draw from the incredible achievements of secular enterprise. It's, it's craftsmanship. Here there's an unblushing uh, attribution of credit. Every human made in God's image equipped because God has equipped humankind with incredible capacity for exploring the world at every level. As one commentator put it, The Bible does not teach that the godly will have all the gifts. At the same time, we are saved from overvaluing these things. The family of Lamech could handle the environment, but not itself. The greatest artistic skill, friends, or technological innovation, name your field, is not sufficient for human flourishing. Scripture in the killing fields of the 20th century can testify to that. 
we will in our sin only wield all of our incredible ability for our own pride and even our pride expressed in the destruction of our neighbors. The first city had command of the earth, but not itself, not the human heart. We see this deficiency in two ominously familiar departments, two ominously familiar departments of marriage and human life. Did you notice that Lamech took two wives? Lamech distorted God's institution of marriage. And I'll acknowledge here that our Old Testament is filled with this kind of and really every kind of marital arrangement. Old Testament narrative does not provide you a qualifying sentence that is a propositional interpretation of God's, uh, God's, you know, God's evaluation of the matter. It is more subtle. And we need only at this point to read on to get to know this Lamech a little better. And we will have our interpretive key to every distortion that follows. Let's listen to this, this innovator's evening conversation with his two wives. Verse 23. Lamech said to his two wives, Ida and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. The one who has distorted God's institution of marriage has now defaced God's image through murder. He's singing about the murder of a man, but not just a man, but a young man, and not just for some great infraction, but for a meager wound. The disproportion is striking. It's a taunt song, like a victory chant. Uh, at the risk of cheapening how this sounds, it's like the chant from the bleachers for your, your team. He's got a taunt song here. Where is God when murderers boast like this? The world is filled with untold cruelty and the innocent are slaughtered. Where is God when a young man is slaughtered at the hands of a proud man for a mere infraction? Remember what God said to Cain concerning Abel. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The God of heaven is in heaven taking it personally. Adam was ashamed of his sin, but Lamech is proud. Adam hid from the Lord. Lamech shouts his sin. Cain is worse than Adam, and Lamech is worse than Cain, the descent of sin. And Lamech establishes, excuse me, Cain establishes a city built on this God-defying priority. History, friends, is not a story of progress from a primitive situation. As the Mesopotamian peoples thought, and as every generation likes to think, because no one likes to think that they're getting it wrong and their parents had it right. We are always doing better than our parents no, history is rather one of cycles of disintegration and a long story of disintegration as we look back to Eden from a perfect situation. And don't miss the poetry once again. The first chapter closed with a poem where God sang and 
spoke over the crown of his creation, humankind, in his image. The second chapter closed with a poem on the lips of the man singing over his wife in the gift of a spouse in marriage. Well, the fourth chapter closes here with a poem on that same two themes, but on the lips of a man who disgraces and despises them both. And so it goes. The first chapter after we leave Eden maps the establishment of early civilization and with it, the descent and the spread of human sin. Just imagine Eve's grief. To personalize this, just imagine her grief. A mother has two boys. One is dead at the hands of the other, his killer. The first broken home. I got an oil change yesterday and met a young man a few years out of high school. We had a chance to chat at the window. He didn't know his biological father. We didn't get into that. It sounded like a difficult story. His adoptive father was murdered just a few years ago by a 16-year-old. And now he's all alone in the world. He's not alone. We're not alone. We all suffer to one degree or another under the cruelty of sin. This is the descent and the spread of sin in this world. You don't have to talk long with anyone who's lived long. Unfortunately, this young man hadn't lived very long to find out how bad it can be. Life is hard and then you die, they say. Eve grieves, but not as one without hope. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. She sees God in her trouble. She feels God in her broken heart, and she remembers the word of God in the midst of her circumstances. She may hear the voice of her boys arguing in her head, but even louder is the voice of God who promised a son to turn back the curse. And we live in a city of this world built on the wandering way of Cain, and we helped build it, but there is another city from another line. Verse 26, to Seth was also born a son, and he called his name Enosh, and at that time the people began to call upon the Lord. Chapter 4 closes out with a note of hope, forward-looking hope. We've seen a man, friend, who wanders from God. This is how not to walk with God. He wandered from God in his heart, and he would wander from God his whole life. Now we arrive back at chapter 5, where we read about a man who walked with God, the skip in the broken record, the, the hint of the song of the Bible's salvation story. Now in verse 21 here, tucked into the genealogy, we heard that when Enoch lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah, and Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God, verse 24, and he was not for God took him. Lamech sang his boastful chant song and his civilization goes silent. We never hear about it again. And in fact, until I had to just stare at this long enough to preach it, I had scarcely noticed the second half of chapter four in the book of Genesis. 
oh, I noticed Cain and I'd noticed Enoch and, and then we get to Noah. I had hardly noticed this civilization of Cain's children, the Cainites, but here it is, and they are forgotten. But here's another man who disappeared from the face of the earth. One is forgotten, but this one is taken, for God took him. We're not given here enough to satisfy our curiosity. We're only given enough here that God might do by his spirit and his word in us exactly and only what he means to do. And that is to give us hope, to confirm his promise. This kind of thing will happen two times in the Old Testament, and that's it. God could have done it a whole bunch of times. He could have given us a chapter on the scene. He tucks it into a genealogy here saying, trust me, it's coming. What does it mean to walk with God? What does it mean then to walk with God? Well, it must mean to put God first. He is first anyway, right? The first one in the beginning God created, and that's a good thing. That was Cain's problem, by the way, that Cain was first. If God will not play second to him, he will have, he will have to kill his brother who bears God's image, whom God approves of. When Cain settles, he even names his city after his own son named Enoch in order that his name might be known down the generations. He wants to be first forever. And later, Lamech Lamech was first. And they built a society on the premise that humanity is first. The best explanation for all of the cruelty that comes to us in the whole world is that man does not walk with God. Man must be first. But putting God first is more than a matter of numerical ranking. Thank God it is more than a matter of numbers. God is first and merely submitting to his firstness. It is a matter of companionship. It's a matter of walking with God. So friends, put God first and walk with God as a friend. Walking where he goes, going where he takes you. May I read this beautiful reflection on this important phrase. The phrase is full of meaning. Enoch walked with God because he was his friend and liked his company because he was going in the same direction as God and had no desire for anything but what lay in God's path. We walk with God and when he is in all of our thoughts, not because we consciously think of him at all times, but because he is naturally suggested to us by all we think of. As when any person or plan or idea has become important to us, no matter what we think of, our thought is always found recurring to this favorite object. So with the godly man, everything has connection with God and must be ruled by that connection. When some change in circumstances is thought of, he has first of all to determine how to, how to proceed how, to, how the proposed change will affect his connection with God? Will his connection be equally clear? Will he be able to live on the same friendly terms with God? And so forth. When he falls into sin, he cannot rest till he has resumed his place at God's side and walks again with him. This is the general nature of walking with God. It is a persistent endeavor to hold all our life open to God's inspection. 
and in conformity to his will. A readiness to give up what we find does cause any misunderstanding between us and God. A feeling of loneliness if we have not some satisfaction in our efforts at holding fellowship with God. A cold, desolate feeling when we're conscious of doing something that displeases him. This walking with God necessarily tells on the whole life and character. As you instinctively avoid subjects which you know will jar upon the feelings of our friend. As you naturally endeavor to suit yourself to your company. So when the consciousness of God's presence begins to have some weight with you. You are found instinctively endeavoring to please him. Repressing the thoughts you know he disproves. And endeavoring to educate such dispositions as reflect his own nature. It's easy then to understand how we may practically walk with God. It is to open to him all our purposes and hopes. To seek his judgment on our scheme of life and idea of happiness. It is to be on thoroughly friendly terms with him. Things were not made ready to Enoch. In evil days with much to mislead him. With everything to oppose him. He had by faith and diligent seeking as the epistle to the Hebrews says, to cleave to the path on which God walked, often left in darkness, often thrown off the track, often listening but unable to hear the football footfall of God or to hear his own name called often, receiving no signs but still diligently seeking the God he knew would lead him only to good. And so friends, I can't put it better than that. And I commend to you, Enoch's God, who will lead you if you're his friend only to the good. It is to walk with God when we put him first and when we walk with him as a friend. It is no drudgery for this friend is so good and this can be your relationship with God. Indeed, you can have what Enoch on this page knew. How may you have it? Is there really hope for us being taken up like Enoch? It is the stuff of sci-fi movies, really. Is it true? Well, friends, Enoch is not the whole story. Remember, he's just a line in the genealogy. He is only a hint, a hint that God befriends us and a hint that God will take us. He is not the whole story, but the Lord Jesus is the whole story who walks with us, who laid his life down for his friends, whom we killed. We are brother murderers, first ourselves, are we not? But whose blood does not cry out guilty toward those who have faith in him, like Abel's blood cried out guilty, but cries out a better word, but cries out forgiven for all those who turn their face, not from God, but to him in faith. Jesus, who was taken up, the truest friend of God, can make you a friend of God. And by faith, he will, yes, just like Enoch, through death and on the other side, take you and me up. And indeed, inasmuch as this room is filled with those who have come to Jesus by faith, and we'll remember that in a few moments through the Lord's table, We will drink in remembrance of the blood of Jesus and longing for his coming 
in a consummated kingdom when we will all together be taken up to be with him forever. Friends, turn with me now to chapter 6. We focused on the bright spot of Enoch and his walk with God. But let us not forget as we step back a little bit. We've had our focal point on Enoch. Let us step back a little bit to realize that in the sweep of the story, it is really mostly dark. If chapter 4 shows us the descent and the spread of sin, and if chapter 5 with its broken record of and he died is the death spiral of sin, then chapter 6 is the total saturation of sin. We'll begin in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that, get this, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, so that the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Since we've left Eden at the start of chapter four, we have had a Two chapters of firsts. Two chapters of firsts. And now we have a last straw as sin makes its complete saturation to every thought and intent of every person on the earth. And God is grieved and he also won't have it, but there is Noah. The line of Cain produced a Lamech who yelled out his sin. He named a Sidere after his son in pride. And the line of Seth, however, thank God there is another line. Thank God he did not shut everything down after Cain. The line of Seth produced a Lamech who yearned for relief from sin and he named his son after God's rest. It is doubtful that Lamech had any idea what God would actually do through his son, Noah, to bring relief and rest to humanity. That is for next week. Thank God that the story of humankind will not always be forever a broken record. And more hints as to how good it will be and how hard it will be on the way there to unfold. Friends, there is only one first in the universe. Let us not forget it. And let's now pray. Father, we thank you for these, these chapters in which we stare into our heart, the mirror of our soul in, in Cain's jealous rage. We may not strike a brother in murder, but we have murdered in our own hearts. And we're glad for the word to tell us so in such straightforward, even if embarrassing terms. And Father, we also thank you that in this record of this genealogy, there is a hint that you have graciously given to us that you will keep your promise, and that we can walk with you and know you and be called friend by you and be taken by you one day. Father, may we at Heritage be friends with God 
May you be first on our lips and in our hearts and in our worship as we gather. And may we be more than those who put you first, but walk with you as friends. May we know the companionship that is ours in Jesus and help us now to know that a little, a little better as we share in the Lord's table. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, the elders and deacons who are serving us this morning can now come forward. We are now approaching the Lord's table for Jesus, who was a friend of sinners who came and walked among us, sat with his disciples and communed with them in a meal, expressing friendship and fellowship on the eve of his own arrest and death, on the eve that he would lay his own life down for his friends. And he gave us a deliberate symbol, a symbol that is to be shared by those who belong to him, a symbol that has two parts, bread and a cup. And it has a particular meaning, which we must always rehearse. The bread representing his broken body for our sins as he hung on the cross and took the punishment that is ours. Jesus' death on the cross is the only way that any sinner can walk with God, befriended by him, safe from his wrath and free from their guilt. And through the cross, friends, we have just that. And then we have his blood, for there's no friendship with God or reconciliation with God. There's no new biography, as Abe mentioned at the start of our service, apart from the shedding of blood. But of course, Jesus' blood was shed for us and cries out, forgiven if we will entrust ourselves to him. The bread and the cup represent the gospel of Jesus, our way of ongoingly identifying with him and with his kingdom and his people. In a few moments, the elders and deacons will serve us with the bread and then the cup following. And as you receive it, please take it and wait and we'll eat it together after prayer. For those of you who do not belong to Christ, this is a public gathering, and, and we're so glad that you are here. We have prayed for you that you come, and we are grateful that you, that you have. If you do not know yourself to be safe with God, if Jesus' blood isn't for you precious and forgiveness, then we would ask you to watch what we are about to do, and we would invite you to join us in it in the future by faith. For those of you who do know Jesus and identify with his people faithfully, uh, we're to do this in a sober and a serious manner. It represents our joy as those who are forgiven, but we're to do it with examination, the scripture says. And so in a moment, we'll bow our heads in examination to confess our sins and to remember all that it is that Jesus has done for us to make this gathering of worship and our friendship with God possible. Let's do that now, as we bow our heads in examination. Father, we pray to you with confidence and with boldness because we pray to you through Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, who was slain for us, who was killed for us, even at the hands of sinners just like us, and as he hung on the tree, humiliated, he bore our sins there. And this bread is a reminder, a gift from you, a sign, a symbol, a reminder of his broken body. We give you thanks for it. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> 